Hey there, welcome to the eighth and final episode of season two of Science and Society. I'm Drew, a med student and fitness junkie. And I'm Liv, a beauty queen turned biochemistry PhD candidate. We're two nerds on a mission to break down the science around us so you can apply it in your life. On today's episode, we're bringing on Dr. Margaret Westwater for a different perspective on nutrition, food addiction, and the underlying neurological pathways of our diets. Keep listening for Dr. Westwater's case against sugar addiction and to learn the true complexity behind these topics. If you missed our last episode with Dr. Avina, give it a listen so you can decide for yourself. Let's get after it. Dr. Westwater obtained her Bachelor's of Science in Neuroscience from George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. Her initial foray into brain imaging research involved volunteering as an undergraduate research assistant on a functional MRI study of bulimia nervosa. Her experience inspired her commitment to pursuing translational research of eating disorders, which led her to complete her graduate training in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Cambridge, where she completed her Master's of Philosophy and PhD degrees. Her work seeks to characterize how interacting metabolic and neural mechanisms shape eating behavior in illness and in health. Dr. Westwater, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both for having me. We are so excited to have you. So we're going to kick it off actually with a more personal question. We wanted to hear a little bit about what you're doing today, kind of what got you to this point in your career. Like we mentioned in your bio, you were at Cambridge for a little bit, but you're now back in the States. So just kind of fill us in on what what you've been doing since graduating. Yeah, that sounds great. So I actually completed my PhD at Cambridge as a part of a joint program between the National Institutes of Health based in Bethesda, Maryland, um, and the university. So as a part of the program, you actually move back and forth between two countries and two research institutions. So it's a bit of fun moving around. And I recently finished uh, my degree. So my degree will be conferred in a few weeks. And I'll be starting a postdoctoral research position at Yale University. Actually, I'll be continuing um, some of my work on our imaging of eating disorders in adolescence um, and other behaviors like alcohol use. That's incredible. Congratulations and best of luck at Yale. That's awesome. So as someone who kind of recently went through that path, what advice would you have for someone who's either in the same boat or planning on being in the same boat soon? So I think that if you're deciding whether to start a graduate program, um, it's really important that you make sure that you're passionate about what you're doing. Even in the best of times, PhDs are extremely demanding and they're going to be full of hiccups and unexpected things um, as you're nodding along. So I think it's really important that you really kind of explore all options and make sure it's what you want to do. I also think it's really important that you find a mentor who supports you. And um, for me, the program that was right for me happened to be in the UK, but that might not be the case for other people. So I think you need to go where you're supported and make sure that you have a strong network um, of people. And especially as young scientists, um, it's so important to collaborate with other people. So I'd also say, try and find a network of like-minded you know, folks who are willing to help you on your scientific endeavors because we cannot do this by ourselves. Absolutely not. <laughs> Not at all. And I guess mom's always right when she says that you are who you hang out with. So I guess that applies in science (laughs) as well. That being said, diving into it now, you did quite a bit of research on the science of food addiction. And after looking into it with a more critical lens, it, it seemed that you and your collaborators determined there wasn't really sufficient evidence to support 
sugar addictions and corporation into public policy. Could you kind of peel back the curtain on that and kind of you know, tell us why? Because we actually just had a, re- a recent interview on the science of nutrition and we talked about some food addiction stuff in there. So we'd love to get your perspective. Sure, absolutely. So I'll just start at the beginning. So when I first moved to Cambridge, um, my supervisors had been involved in this kind of academic debate about food addiction as a construct. And food addiction is a term that's been around for almost a century. And the way it's been defined has changed over the years. But in recent years, probably in the last 10 to 15 years, it's been very strongly defined in line with how we define substance use disorders um, as mental health conditions. So this is a bit different from something like a behavioral addiction, like gambling disorder, where the idea is that there's some agent in food that's eliciting behaviors that might look like substance use disorders, like cocaine use disorder or heroin use disorder, et cetera. Um, One problem with the food addiction narrative is that there hasn't been much evidence to actually identify a putative addictive agent in food. So if we want to say that food is the same as cocaine or is the same as heroin, we need to find something, potentially a macronutrient or something else that is actually eliciting that effect. So I think that from that lack of uh, this kind of addictive agent, sugar addiction kind of evolved because people thought, well, maybe it's sugar. So that seems kind of like an intuitive, um, a highly emotive um, potential explanation. If you use the term sugar addiction, you know, people identify with that. They feel like, oh, yeah, it's, you know, I like sweet tastes. I feel like this applies to me and that it's hard to control eating sweet foods. I mean, personally, I do have a sweet tooth. So I, you know, while I haven't suffered with an eating disorder, I totally understand like the pleasure that we get from eating sweet foods. That makes two of us. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. So, so I think that this is a very emotive idea. And I think it, in line with the fact that in many countries in the United States, and as well as countries across Europe, and even developing countries, for example, in Africa, obesity rates have been climbing in the past few decades. So people are trying to understand what is it. And, and the answer to that is not a simple answer. There's many causes of weight gain. Um, but undoubtedly, the food environment is, is playing some role. And I think that people feel that sugar and potentially sugar addiction is one explanation for the increase in obesity. So we kind of literature review to really understand um, if there is evidence to support that claim. And what we found was that a lot of this claim has actually emerged from studies of rodents, so rats and mice, under very specific conditions in a lab that actually really don't translate very well to humans. Um, And moreover, even when you look specifically in those conditions, when you give animals access to sugar or things like saccharin or sucralose that are sweet but don't actually have any calories, um, that their behaviors still are not matching what you would see in rodents that are developing quote unquote addiction to cocaine or heroin. And we think that this is really important when we've tried to explain what might be causing very distressing um, eating problems and potentially um, weight gain that might be problematic for the individual. Um, I think we need to be really careful about the words that we use because they could have some unintended consequences for people. Absolutely. And in science and in research, I think it's really interesting to think about animal studies in general. I've kind of from what I've learned over the past few months, especially is that that kind of tends to be the biggest gap to jump 
in research, you know, kind of going from this wonderful mouse model where everything's working great or things are kind of looking the way they're supposed to and suddenly things just don't translate well to humans. And I mean, I think it kind of feels obvious that, you know, humans aren't necessarily very similar to mice. I don't think most people would be surprised to hear that. Hopefully not. But I think we've become really dependent on those models. And it's interesting because it doesn't really piece together the same because there's, especially psychologically and and neurologically, there's so much more to people than there is to mice. Thank goodness that we function at a higher rate than a mouse does. But kind of thinking about what your group found in this review, do you think there is a real explanation for what we've seen in these different patterns in people? Because like you mentioned, obesity rates are higher. Lots of people kind of feel varying levels of not necessarily addiction to food, but you know, everybody loves maybe like a dependence. Yeah, like a dependence or just kind of an over reliance on food. Is there a reason for it at all? Well, I think we're absolutely dependent on food. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I think what you're specifically referring to is this idea of potentially highly processed foods, yeah. or foods that are high in, <laughs> high yes. in fat or high in sugar. <laughs> um, right. But, I, but actually, that's a really important thing that we need to emphasize when we start talking about food dependence. Well, yeah we are dependent on food. <laughs> so I think we need to be careful when we start to over-medicalize behavior. And I just kind of want to back up a second um, and discuss in terms of what you were saying about the animal models, that actually some of the behavior that's elicited in rodents is a fact of the environment and the way in which sugar is restricted. So actually the animals are only showing this kind of binge-like consumption of sugar or even sweet tastins, again, that have no calories. So they can't really be a drug if it's just the sweet taste that's driving the behavior. So it's really only observed under very specific circumstances that of course don't extend to humans because we have so much more control over environment. We literally have apps on our phones where we can order whatever we want. We have 24 seven, you know, access to foods. Um, so I think that, that that's another thing to consider when we're trying to extrapolate information from animals to humans. Now, going back to kind of why people might feel that food addiction is a salient construct, I think in part from a research perspective, you know, people who struggle with overeating often describe feelings that look phenomenologically similar to substance use disorder. So this might be feeling a loss of control. So I, in my PhD, worked with patients with binge eating disorders. And a core feature of those disorders is eating more food than you intended, feeling like you can't stop eating when you start eating. And indeed, some of those binge eating episodes do you know, include foods that we would think of as potentially addictive by the way they're defined, right? So things like pizza or ice cream. Just because something at a behavioral level, at a phenomenological level, looks like an addiction, that doesn't necessitate that it's actually reflecting the same mechanism. So that's where it's our job as scientists to try and understand, well, of course, the brain evolved to seek food, right? It's a reward. It's a primary reward that we need to survive. And we know that drugs, quote unquote, hijack that system. But what we've seen now in the literature is that food does not have the same pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic effects that drugs of abuse have. So that's where there's these missing gaps. How do we explain what people are suffering with when we know that we've tested this model and there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence in particular for sugar addiction that it's the case. 
So I think that there's a lot of really exciting work going on now to try and understand much more about metabolism and why is it that some people feel so driven to consume excess calories or struggle so much with food. Um, and I think some really interesting work is looking much more intensively at the gut brain axis. So we know that, you know, we're absorbing nutrients in the gut and there's projections via the vagus nerve or even just little hormones that, you know, pass into the bloodstream and can cross the blood brain barrier, that there's these very complex systems that are controlling um, the way that we feel hungry, and actually even how our body reinforces food that we eat that might be hyper palatable. So there's a lot of work going on to understand that, but there's still a lot of gaps that, that we're trying to fill. So I think that unfortunately, we don't have the answers that people might be looking for. Um, but there certainly are groups that would like to believe that food addiction is an answer. I don't think that the empirical evidence would suggest that. And I think that we need to be careful about kind of potentially guiding people towards something that doesn't have a lot of empirical support behind it, because I don't know that that will help them improve their well-being or quality of life. That makes a lot of sense. And I just, just to summarize and kind of make sure that we're, we're on the same page, it sounds like there was some advancement of this research to the point where we, whether as an entire scientific community or at least part of a scientific community, believe that there was some drug-like characteristics of foods like Oreos or just high sweets, high fat foods that had addictive-like qualities. But now we're kind of pumping the brakes on that because there's no underlying neurochemical or pathway that actually replicates or to our knowledge replicates that of cocaine or any other addictive drugs, for example. Is that correct? I think that that's one way to summarize it. I think we have to be specific when we're talking about foods in general versus specific macronutrients. So my review that focused specifically on sugar found that there was very little evidence to suggest that sugar is modifying, for example, the dopaminergic system in a way that cocaine or heroin did. However, if you look at high fat diets in animals, fat is a little bit different. So I don't want to extrapolate what I've done in sugar specifically to fats. That said, you know, fat is not an addictive agent. It's not a controlled substance. It's not something that causes inebriation. If we go down the list of of symptoms of substance use disorder, fat does not engender those things. <laughs> so I think that there are still marked differences, but in terms of at the neurobiological level, there are some things that might be more specific to fat consumption or high fat diets rather than to sugar consumption. And again, one point I want to drive home specifically with regard to sugar is that you actually see in these animals that they develop the same behavior to sweet tastes. So you can literally feed an animal a sweet taste and drain it out of its stomach and it will develop a binge-like pattern. So that really strongly implicates that it's sweet taste and it's not the post-ingestive effects of sugar. Whereas of course, if it were like a drug, we can't just smell alcohol and become drunk, we have to metabolize it and the pharmacokinetic effects are what causes inebriation. And similarly, you find those things with sweet tastes from sucralose or non-nutritive sweeteners, like I said, and some really elegant work has also shown that there's actually separate neural circuits in the brain that promote seeking calorific sweetener because it's so critical to maintain life <laughs> um, <laughs> that are different from, from sweet taste. So we actually, as mammals, will prioritize 
seeking calories, um, even if they're associated with a bitter taste. So I think that when we're talking about these things, I would agree with you that there's not compelling evidence that they are the same as drugs. Of course, a big challenge is when you say something like food addiction, well, what drug are you comparing it to? <laughs> There's so many different drugs. They're totally, you know, they have different effects on the body. So we need to be really specific about that. And I don't think that in historically people have been so specific, but some other more recent considerations might say, oh, well, food addiction might be more similar to nicotine or to caffeine, but I don't think that there's a lot of evidence that's really tested that rigorously to make those claims. So, so we need to be specific when we're talking about the drug that it may or may not be like. And I don't think that's something that's been fully explored. It is amazing how complex the whole system is, if you think about it. And I think I've heard more and more about the gut-brain connection, the gut-brain access. I think that's a relatively recent development as far as I know. Uh, I've certainly seen more of it. Maybe it hasn't been a recent development so much as it's just becoming more and more interesting to research because our technology has just gotten so much better. But it is interesting because it still sounds like, to some extent, food has some sort of psychological impact. We just can't really deduce kind of the connection from the substance to the quote-unquote addiction, but there is some sort of psychological impact that food can have on people such that it leads to binge eating disorders and other eating disorders. Is that correct, though? Well, I guess I would push back a bit on the idea that food is causing these things. So in, in okay. part, our food environment can change our behavior, right? Um, but it's not necessarily a driver of these disorders. So if we're talking specifically, you know, about obesity or about eating disorders, these are extremely complex disorders that are caused by a variety of genetic and environmental factors. Okay. And I think that as a cognitive neuroscientist, the idea that we have that, of, of course, we are encoding aspects of food in our brain, like the flavor of food, we're making associations, we're learning about what foods do we find tasty, what foods are not tasty. Um, so there, of course, we learn strong associations about foods that can drive our behavior. I would suggest that it's not specifically because of post-ingestive effects alone. And I think a related thing is, again, as someone who studies eating disorders, we learn a lot and absorb a lot from culture about what are good and bad foods. And I think that's super unhelpful terminology, and it's actually extremely harmful to some people. Yes. So I think as scientists, we need to be careful when we start to kind of demonize a macronutrient, for example. Well, you can't cut out sugar from your diet because if you eat a tomato, it has sugar. <laughs> so we need to be very specific yes. and careful about how we phrase these things because yes we do learn a lot about our food environment and that guides our behavior yeah it, it really is a difficult to unravel problem yeah there's behind i'm referring to obesity specifically there's there's just so many different factors at play everything from genetics to environment you know and everything in between if you're thinking that just as, as kind of a scale from you know amino acid sequences to the policies or laws in place in, in the country that that you reside so there's a ton there and we could have probably several episodes just on, just on that just on that topic but i, I want to come back just to a, a term you used earlier hyper palatable foods and their potential for overconsumption, maybe is that I don't know if that's the right word to say, but what defines a hyperpalatable food and what makes it susceptible to being overconsumed? So I think there have been several different definitions of palatability thrown around in the literature. 
sometimes it relates to the degree of processing of the food. So if we think about having like a raw carrot versus a carrot that's steamed versus a carrot that's mashed. So these are all degrees of processing that affect the caloric availability of the food or the energy density of the food. So a a very recent study actually published by Kevin Hall and colleagues of the National Institute of Diabetes, Digestive and Kidney Diseases at the NIH found that just giving people access to ultra processed foods leads to an increase in calorie consumption, a few hundred calories a day, let's say. Um, So we do know that was a really important study in demonstrating that the processing of food can lead to increased consumption, or like you said, overconsumption. What we don't know is why that's happening. And I think it's very tempting um, as scientists and as people who want to discuss our work with the public to kind of put out these very simple answers that that might address the question. The fact there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And going back to your comment on the gut-brain axis, I absolutely agree that we're learning so much about the gut-brain axis, thanks to, again, new technologies and these really clever assays in animals, as well as some really unique studies in people. For example, we have colleagues at the University of Cambridge who look at folks with elective gastrectomies um, to avoid um, hereditary gastric cancer. And that's a really interesting population to look at when you're trying to understand what happens to the body when you don't have a stomach. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're fascinating and so important in advancing our understanding of this extremely complex system. But yes, so I mean, processing, again, it's, it's related to palatability. And certainly, I think the energy density of foods as well can be related to their palatability and the proportion of sugar and um, fats in them as well, as well as other flavors, right? Like salt or just additive flavors can affect palatability too. Actually, that reminds me of, so my sister had COVID earlier, and I know she's not the only one who experienced this, but a lot of COVID patients have lost either their sense of taste, their smell, or oftentimes both. And a lot of those people actually say that they ate less or just enjoyed eating less because they didn't experience, you know, what is really kind of the initial experience of eating food. And even before eating food, you can smell it. So it was just the fact that the food didn't smell as good. Suddenly they weren't enjoying some of their favorite things as much. So I thought that was something really interesting and probably a little complicated to hash out. But before we wrap up, because you're heading into your postdoc at Yale, and like you mentioned, there's still a ton of work to be done in this field. And it sounds like we really have a lot of space to go, which is always exciting. What do you hope to accomplish or look at in the next couple of years? Yeah, so um, one project that I'm really interested in pursuing is getting back to what we're discussing with the gut-brain axis is to understand more about the mechanisms of anorexia nervosa. It's actually kind of the complete opposite of what we've been discussing and how um, folks with this disorder um, are kind of maintaining extremely low calorie intake and why that's the case and why, um, again, in response to this environment with very rewarding hyperpalatable foods, you see the persistence of kind of maladaptive food intake and how is the gut talking to the brain um, and, and serving those behaviors is one project. And another project is actually to look a little bit more in a more nuanced way at Um, shared and unique neural circuits of eating behavior and alcohol use. So alcohol is a really interesting drug in that it's actually consumed with calories, right? When we have wine or beer, you know, they're they're quite calorific. Um, And I don't think we have a good understanding of 
of how similar um, those consumatory behaviors are when we look at food and alcohol, and in particular, thinking about the gut, brain, and liver axis and those disorders. So that's something that I think will be super important and very interesting to look at. That all sounds incredibly exciting, and we wish you the best of luck and much success in your future, in these future research endeavors. I'm excited to hear about it. Thank you for being on the show. Of course, no problem. Thank you both so much. And of course, I wish you the best of luck with your schooling too. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> wow. My mind is blown. Yeah, that that was a remarkable episode. And we didn't record the last bit of our conversation, but we kind of talked about how interesting it is to kind of marry these different levels of science because a lot of people kind of tend to focus on, you know, psychological disorders kind of from a psychological perspective. And then you have people who kind of look at big picture metabolism and people who look at things so detailed and so small level as, you know, protein structure and things like that and kind of research that has to find some sort of agreement and find some sort of connection between these different levels of science is really, really difficult. And I think it's interesting for someone like Dr. Westwater to have to think not only from the psychological perspective, but also from the biochemical and neurological and metabolic perspectives and all these different things have to sort of align to really find the true answer of what's going on. And that is remarkable to me. It really is. And I think one of the biggest takeaways is that it's incredibly complex. And what we're seeing here is pretty much a direct butting of heads in the scientific community. And that fires me up. I love it. I love (laughs) to see it. Seriously, because so often we just see, I don't mean just see, but we see a lot of like progression of research and there's, you know, a general consensus about things. But when we have combating opinions, and differing viewpoints that probably likely have pretty solid evidence for them coming from just different angles. It's really fascinating to be able to understand and talk and discuss and just hear different people discuss their ideas. Absolutely. And I think what's really interesting in this case in particular is you know, like you mentioned, most science kind of tends to move in one direction, and that means forward or progressively and kind of learning more and creating this bigger body of research. But the more data you have, the more research you have, suddenly, first of all, there's room for interpretation of data. So people looking at the same set of evidence, the same set of data, the same set of papers might make different conclusions based on what they consider, what they don't consider, how they value certain aspects of the research. And that can really play a role into what the final conclusion is. It's not so simple as just statistics and number crunching. It really kind of comes down to what your belief is of the underlying science. And I think what's also interesting about this case is there's also a disagreement on semantics because what is sugar addiction? What does addiction mean in this case? And and what drugs are we comparing it to? And what is food addiction? Is food referring to all food? Are we referring to high sugar, high fat foods, who defines what high fat and high sugar is. You know, there's so many different definitions that aren't particularly clear, but they're really easy to kind of throw around. And I think that makes this all the more interesting because to really understand the different viewpoints, you also have to understand what definitions they're working with. So I really enjoyed this episode. It took us quite a bit to hash out really what these definitions actually are and what they are in the world of science. 
but it all makes sense at the end of the day it really does it it really does and like you said with addiction that word in and of itself carries a lot of weight right and when we start throwing around that word or using it in certain ways that might mean something different to somebody else and I think that was another big takeaway from this episode and the last two episodes really was that you know I have a understanding and a internalization of the word addiction and how my like my relationship with food is different from your relationship with food it's different from everybody else's relationship with food and high sugar high fat foods and the degree to which we perceive something to be addictive is just different for all of us and i think that is like a crux of this disagreement that's going on absolutely and i think it also highlights a really important responsibility kind of on a more serious note it also highlights a really important necessity and responsibility of the scientific community to be extraordinarily clear almost to the point of ridiculousness when we share our information with people in the public and people in society because even if a paper isn't published with headline verbiage it can often be taken and kind of reformed into headline verbiage so Definitely on a more serious note, we're not going to go down that tunnel because it is, again, an episode in all of itself. But I think both you and I in the future have to be really careful about how we say certain things and to not sensationalize things that aren't ready to be sensationalized yet. So that's something that will come into play later in our life. But I think it's also important on the flip side for people who aren't in the scientific field to really look at publications, whether it's publications in scientific journals, which I hope they're not reading just for fun. But I mean, do you do you? But even especially in the news and, and, you know, on on TV to really kind of think critically about what's being said and, you know, fact check a couple of things. Right. Look into how these people are drawing these conclusions. I think that makes all the difference when it comes to this type of science that is really applicable on a societal level. So that's my big advice. Check your check your work and check other people's work. Yeah. And try to try to formulate your own methodology for thinking through different problems and ideas and things that are put out there absolutely look at that giving us uh giving us pretty good life advice here you know i you know we do what we can we do what we can what a great way to wrap up season two absolutely and that is all for this week's episode and this season too and this season oh my goodness it's already over we'll be back for season three soon we will you can follow Dr. Westwater on Twitter at Maggie Eastfire. Fun name. But um, <laughs> to catch our new releases, upcoming topics, and science shenanigans, you can follow us on Instagram at Science and Society. If you have enjoyed our show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help more people find Science and Society. We release new shows every other Monday. But since this is our final episode of season two. Be on the lookout for season three starting sometime this summer. And as always, peace, love, and science.